0: Jump into the world of Wild Krats at Philadelphia's Please Touch Museum. Explore the world of this PBS Kids series in the Wild Kratts Creature Power Museum exhibit, opening May 31st. Discover animal habits from around the world as you swing through the trees like a spider monkey, sneak through the forest like a jaguar, hunt for lunch like a platypus, and much more in this adventurous new exhibit. Get tickets at pleasetouchmuseum.org. That's pleasetouchmuseum.org.
1: Here you have no compelling state interest that is worth consideration. Mr. Maybe Mr. Roddard would feel differently. That may be true. Is he in the room yet? I, I hope not. Uh, he's waving a flag in the back, I think. <laughs> I, think we're, I think it's safe. Light bulb went out. It's a trick they play on new cheap customers <laughs> <laughs> of all <time. laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> Uh,
2: Mr. Chief, uh, excuse me, Mr. Scalia, I, was, I didn't mean to promote you so quite so quickly. Uh,
1: thanks for thinking it was a promotion. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Christina, you know how much I love this stuff.
4: Oh, I do. You and Hannah have done, what, 20 episodes that use archival audio from Supreme Court arguments?
3: About that much, maybe more. I cannot tell you how many hours of audio I have downloaded from O-Yay in the last five years.
4: All right, Nick, why do you love oral arguments so much? I've known this about you since I started on the show, but I don't think I've ever heard your elevator pitch. So sell me oral arguments as a practice on the Supreme Court.
3: Okay, one of the first interviews I ever did for civics 101 was with a guy named larry robbins and he worked in the office of the solicitor general he had argued cases in front of the supreme court and i asked him like what's it like when you go in there and he said it's basically just a conversation with nine of the smartest people you've ever met in your life and you've got two parties trying to make their case in front of them almost like you're at a cocktail party And when we think of the Supreme Court, we always think about these opinions they write, right? These long, winding, official pieces of writing with lots of notes and citations that live in the annals of history. But the arguments are human. The arguments are when the justices talk to each other and the advocates. And I love conversation.
4: I mean, you've sold me. So the oral arguments are a way to see behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah,
3: see behind the robe.
4: (laughs) You get to hear each individual voice. You get to listen to how they ask questions, what kind of tone they're taking.
3: Yeah, and when it comes to, like, entertainment value, the oral arguments of the 19th and 20th century were much more like listening to a professor present their research and methods of an academic paper to other professors.
4: And how do they sound now? Well... Especially
3: over the last 20 years or so, it started to sound a little more like, do you know the show Shark Tank? I do know the show Shark Tank. It's a lot more like Shark Tank, Christina. You're trying to pitch nine investors on, like, who's going to invest in their product. And, you know, a couple of them are ambivalent, a couple need to be swayed, and a couple are gung-ho for you all the way. And, and, right. and that is
1: and an assumption saying, that no. has no basis in this record. Oh, but it's but a there is. stereotypical no, it's not. assumption. That's it's what it is. It's not, because it's be reality difference. that Justice Ryan, wants to rely on. Let me finish my point.
4: And if we're sticking with that metaphor of Shark Tank, are some of the justices kind of like the investors in the way that they have their personalities and some of them like to talk a lot more? and... And some
3: don't say anything and they just glower at everybody. So oral arguments lately have become more like stages for the justices themselves to reveal their personalities. We're also able to better predict how a justice is going to vote on a decision based on what they say during the arguments. We can see how justices treat certain cases and the attorneys advocating in those cases in front of
1: them differently. Let's just say I, he, hypo- hypothetically, though. Uh, hypothetically. and I, I know I'm going to get... I, this, I know all the usual caveats, right, and right. I accept them. Oh, thank you, Mr. Yes, Waxman. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty thank sure you. since you're asking me, I'm not going to like... You're it. not going to let it.
4: But let's assume...
3: You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice.
4: I'm Christina Phillips. I'm the senior producer here at Civics 101, stepping in for Hannah this week because she is on a rare and much-deserved vacation.
3: Today, we are going to talk about oral arguments in the Supreme Court, specifically what this new era of oral arguments says about the highest court in the land and its role in our increasingly divided political climate.
2: So oral argument is a great thing to study because it's the one part of the judge's decision-making process that we can actually observe. Everything else is behind closed doors. They meet behind closed doors. The opinions are just issued. But oral argument, we can actually look at um, at how they interact. And so that can be very revealing of ideology, strategy, etc. This is Tanya Jacoby.
3: She's Professor of Law and the Sam Nunn Chair in Ethics and Professionalism at Emory University School of Law. So Tanya studies what we can think of as the humanness of the highest court in the land. She looks at how the justices behave within the confines and expectations of the Supreme
2: Court. Traditionally, there's an expectation that the justices won't really refer to each other in in pejorative terms, for example, in opinions. But the norms of collegiality maybe are breaking down a little as I think the court has become more polarized. Uh, over time more politically polarized. There's, there's less of a sort of a consensus among the court now than there used to be, just like the rest of society, the Supreme Court's becoming more polarized um, between sort of left and right. And so, and as that's happened, we've seen a lot more um, of that sort of name falling in opinions and we've also seen, my own research has shown that at oral argument we've seen real changes in behavior, a lot more interrupting of each other, um, for instance, Justices talking over one another, behavior like that that's not as collegial.
4: And real quick, written opinions are basically the explanations of the justices' thinking once they've made a decision.
3: Yeah, there's like the majority opinion, which is usually authored by one justice with a lot of help from clerks, and it explains the rationale for that majority ruling. Now, if not all the justices are in agreement, there may be dissenting opinions, and sometimes there are what's called concurring opinions.
4: And that's when the justice says, I agree with the decision made by the majority, but there are a few things in that opinion that I disagree with or that I want to expand on, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Or they came to the same conclusion that the majority made, but through a different legal reasoning.
4: But that's all on paper. And that comes at the end of the case. How do oral arguments help us get there?
3: All right, here we go. First off, arguments in the Supreme Court bear very little resemblance to a regular old trial. There's no evidence, there's no cross-examination, no jury. They're not deciding the case itself, whether somebody's guilty or not. They're deciding whether the laws involved are constitutional. The justices are reevaluating cases that have already been decided in the lower courts. And in order to get the Supreme Court up to speed, the two sides submit briefs. Briefs are short, thus the name, written arguments that lay out the history of the case and what they think the ruling should be, defending the previously made decision or presenting an argument why that decision was wrong.
4: And there are amicus briefs too, right?
3: Right. Those are briefs from the, quote, friends of the court, Amici. Uh, These are legal and policy experts, scholars, people who are able to offer additional context and expertise to each side. And the Supreme Court gets all of these briefs before the oral argument even happens.
4: So when they walk into oral arguments, they already know a ton about the case.
3: Yeah, they're not here to, like, learn anything new. This is just a chance to ask each side more about their legal rationale. And each side gets one attorney to present its case.
4: And those attorneys are usually referred to as advocates.
3: Yeah, when you hear us refer to advocates today, we're just talking about the two attorneys. Sometimes there might be a third or even a fourth person who presents to the justices, but each person presents one at a time.
4: How long are oral arguments supposed to be?
3: It's not a hard and fast rule, but it's usually 60 minutes. 30 minutes for one side, 30 minutes for the other. They used to be longer. Sometimes arguments would go days long. But over time, the briefs have gotten more detailed, and the oral arguments have become more succinct. Sometimes it's not too common. The chief justice may decide that it's going to go an extra day or another hour or something like that.
4: So the advocates get up there and they just start talking until they get interrupted by the justices? No, actually.
3: (laughs) Uh, Used to be that way until about 2019. In that year, the court created a new rule where the advocates were allowed to speak for two minutes straight before the justices could interrupt.
4: Two minutes does not seem like a very long time.
3: That may be so, Christina, and all the justices have done this. But as an example, I'm going to tell you about Sonia Sotomayor. One time, Justice Sotomayor waited a grand total of 11 seconds before interrupting an ad. Mr. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Social Security Appeals Council dismissal order in this case was a final decision because it marked the agency's last word on petitioner's application.
1: for. Mr. Decision. Houston, if you believe that, is the government instructing its line
4: attorneys to waive exhaustion? Of OK, freedom? she didn't even let him finish his sentence. Yeah.
3: And aside from this new two minute rule and the general deference that the justices play to the chief justice who introduces the advocates and manages the flow of everything, there aren't any real strict rules about how justices are expected to conduct themselves. Here's Tanya Jacoby again.
2: And I've done some research on how the justices behave to one another, for example, when they're hearing cases. And this is completely unregulated. So uh, there, there are norms of collegiality that the justices are sort of expected to follow. But uh, but there's nothing written down. The justices always emphasise that they all get along very well, despite that they keep their that they keep their differences to the substance of opinions and not, uh, you know, don't take it out on one another. Fundamental
1: problem that I think Justice Alito is pointing to, and you're sort of talking past each other. So maybe I'll explain his view. <laughs> <laughs> Strange, isn't that? I can, use,
2: um, I can use the help.
1: I think I'll explain what is.
2: But sometimes that seems a little bit uh, hard to believe. So if you listen to oral arguments from, say, 30 years ago, uh, they are very boring, <laughs> to be honest. Um, there's a lot of just the advocates talking uninterrupted, the justices occasionally asking questions, and then the advocates will give long answers. A
1: long line of cases going back. To the inception uh, of the, for enforcement. the court of This court has looked at this language and this is on page 122, the uh, third indented paragraph.
2: And um, And it's not very entertaining. It might be informative, but it's not nearly as entertaining. Whereas now you hear the justices jumping in, asking a question, and then somebody else, one of the other justices from the other side, saying, well, what about this and interrupting each other, and uh, and the chief justice having to step in and say whose turn it is to speak? Uh, the baker is speech, but the gr- the great chef who's like everything
1: is perfect on the plate, and it's a work of art. It's a masterpiece. Well, Your Honor, you have to confront that issue in every First Amendment case. You know, General, you know, my my colleagues, I think, go to uh, more uh, elite restaurants than I do, <laughs> but. My- <laughs> Same here, I, I, I think that if well, if, if, if in my if in my dreams I could go to a Michelin I don't know one tenth star I don't know two star restaurant and there was you a, can
3: hear uh, this for yourself, gentle listener. You can just go to Oye. That's O Y E Z dot org. They have recordings of every argument going back to about nineteen sixty five. We love them, and it's not just the general attitude that is changing; it's what the justices are actually saying when they speak up. What do you mean? I mean, talking more and asking less.
4: Okay, so when did this start to shift?
2: A lot of changes happened around 1995 when, when the country became more politically polarized. And we saw a lot of changes happening at the Supreme Court starting at around that period as well.
3: A lot of things happened in the 90s. But the big takeaway was that there was more fighting and less compromising between political parties, especially in Congress. Harder lines drawn in the sand, Christina.
4: Yeah, the 90s are definitely one of those times in political history that come up whenever we're talking about partisan divide, especially in Congress. Everything from the debt ceiling to the income tax system to impeachment. This was the era with the contract with America. And there were just all these debates about decorum, partisanship, how Congress should run.
3: Exactly. And obviously, we cannot draw a straight line from behavior in Congress to the behavior of the justices in the Supreme Court. However, I will say the branches don't exist in their own little independent vacuums. Supreme Court justices are nominated and appointed by politicians. And it was this time period, Christina, the 1990s, that things started to shift.
2: So one thing that really changed... Uh, starting around 1995, is the justices started talking more and more. And, um, and traditionally, oral argument has been limited to 60 minutes. And so that meant the advocates got to talk less. And, uh, and so the justices, over that sort of 20-odd year period, were talking about 13 minutes more out of a 60-minute oral argument. So that's about 25% almost more. And the advocates getting to speak less.
4: But if the point of oral arguments is for justices to have a chance to ask questions and be persuaded by the advocates, could this just be a case of them being more engaged, more curious?
2: Well, there was zero increase in the number of questions that were asked by the justices during that time. That whole 25% increase in which the justices were talking was taken up by comments made by the justices. And so these conclusory statements the justices were making were a pretty good indication that they were advocating for a particular position rather than inquiring through questions.
4: Conclusory statements meaning that rather than asking an advocate to explain their case, the justices were getting their own point across instead.
3: Yeah, and this could be through posing hypothetical situations, explaining case law, or just straight up stating an opinion.
2: And we measured this in the most generous possible way that we could to show that that there were comments rather than questions. So if an entire speech episode, if there was one single question mark, we counted that as a question, and still there was no real increase in um, in questions being asked, all of that additional time was spent making comments. And so conclusions by the justices uh, rather than asking questions in which they could be persuaded. So that's the first real measure. Tanya also made a note of when the justices were speaking the most. Another measure is that If you look at who the justices talk to during oral argument, they use up more of the time of the advocate that subsequently, when the vote comes, they vote against. So they talk to the advocate um, that they're going to rule against. They're essentially sort of using up their time to a certain extent. And we showed that you can predict how a justice is going to rule, because remember, oral argument comes before the vote. You can predict how they're going to vote based on who they're talking to. And so they spend their time talking to the people that they going, that they ultimately are going to disagree with rather than the people that they agree with.
4: It almost sounds more like the kind of strategy you would see when you're debating something, a bill in Congress, where the politicians are trying to waste someone's time to deflate their argument.
3: Yeah, just running out the clock, you know? For example, there was a case called Gill v. Whitford, which had to do with partisan gerrymandering. And Justice Samuel Alito started his question to one of the advocates
1: this way. On the Mr. Now, Smith, can I just say something, ask you a question about the, the political science? I mean, I, and
3: he then and proceeds, proceeds to talk for three minutes.
1: We are going to impose a standard. This three-judge court decided this. Now, it's been 30 years since All right, in 2014, it's been finally, after 200 years, it's been finally. And at the end? So this is 2017, Is the time to jump into this. That's a, a, a question. Is there mark. a questionnaire, there, Your Honor? Yeah, there is a question there. There are about 10 of them.
4: This is like when you make the mistake of asking someone at a party if they've read anything good lately and they proceed to give you the entire plot of a 10-book series. And ultimately, it sounds like it sucks up a lot of that limited time that's supposed to be about how the law should apply in that particular case. And then not
2: only that, but if you combine these two elements of advocacy and you look at questions and who they're talking to, we showed that the justices are asking questions of the side that they ultimately rule for and making comments primarily to the side that they actually rule against. So what they're doing is they're making statements against the advocate to the advocate that they disagree with, and then asking questions, giving
4: opportunities to speak to the advocates that they actually agree with. Okay, so let's imagine I'm an advocate trying to suss out how my case is going, and I notice the other side is getting a ton of questions from one justice. But when I was speaking, that same justice spent five minutes waxing poetic on a minute piece of legal history, I might think that maybe things are going better for my opponent when it comes to that justice.
3: Potentially, yes.
4: And so all of these elements are aspects of what
2: we call judicial advocacy, that the justices come in with a set idea of who they're gonna rule for, and they speak for the position that they're arguing for rather than just being open-minded and say, okay, here's your chance to convince me, advocate, tell me the answers to these questions.
4: Judicial advocacy. Basically, the justices are playing the roles of the advocates themselves.
3: Yeah, and just sort of to add to this advocacy thing, sometimes the justices seem to come to the advocate's
2: aid. One of the things that we identify is the justices stepping in to help an advocate who they think is not getting a point across that they want to get across. And so you you have examples where a justice will lay out an entire argument to the advocate who is making that argument and um and then the justice will say something like is that correct and the advocate will say correct
3: i have an example of this for you dean v united states 2017. now we're not going to go into the facts of the case here but in short it was a case about how judges decide mandatory minimum sentences in criminal cases the advocate alan Stoller, was
1: struggling to explain his point but the uh the language that, that says consecutive also is, is, is meant to say that, that it can't run with those those, nine, those uh, underlying predicate offenses. Council, um, so Justice
3: Sotomayor jumped in and started explaining it herself. You can't
1: impose a sentence simply because you disagree with the guideline.
3: So then Justice Sotomayor began walking through his argument and how the law should apply in this case.
2: And then she says, "Correct." 5-5-3, Correct. Correct. And then Justice Sotomayor so, says, "So it's not negating Congress's purpose if the district court gives one day." Correct. Gives one day. Correct. And Advocate Stoller says, "I would, I would, I would say so not, not no. no, Justice Sotomayor. And, and one day is a, a day, day of punishment, punishment isn't it, Alan Stoller? I no question as to so that, Your, that's that's your that's Honor. Yes, Justice, justice Sotomayor. Isn't, isn't that, that your point? point?" And then Alan Stoller says, so basically, "Basically, it is that."
1: that. And it, the, we also have to take into consideration.
4: So Justice Sotomayor is basically feeding Stoller his lines.
1: Yeah,
3: and it is so obvious, it's so blatant, that another justice points it out.
2: Now, later in the argument, um, Advocate Stoller confuses Justice Sotomayor with Justice Kagan, which happens sometimes particularly among the
1: female justices. But as Justice Kagan and I discussed, one day is an additional
2: punishment. And Justice Kagan said something very unusual. She said, she's Justice Sotomayor. She was the one helping you.
1: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. She was helping you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, I was the one who wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I got my ends mixed up. I'm sorry.
4: Wow, I love that she just says that.
2: <laughs> now, that is very unusual for a justice to actually acknowledge what is going on, that, that Justice Sotomayor was stepping in and engaging in advocacy and explicitly saying, this justice is trying to help you, and I am not. I am trying to ask you a question. And so that was a little bit of a breach of the collegiality norms uh, by acknowledging what was actually going on in this case, that Justice Sotomayor went to this great length to spell out his advocate's argument for him, and he just kept saying, correct, correct, no, you are right, absolutely, Your Honor, yes, that's right. And anytime you see in the transcript an advocate saying, Correct. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's what I meant. Thank you, Justice Ginsburg. Like, that's you're, precisely you're correct. Wrong. That's, that's entirely correct, Your Honor. And Then you know that the justice is doing this particular type of advocacy, um, this sort of softball questions of saying, let me help you.
4: Is this sort of thing common or kind of a one-off scenario?
3: Tanya said that this was happening a lot.
4: Okay, so where is this coming from? You mentioned that this shift in the Supreme Court started happening in the 1990s. But I also know from being a person in the world, interacting with other people, that there's usually one person at the party who kind of sets the tone. Was there something like that at the Supreme Court?
3: Yeah, so there was that guy at the party for sure. He was the equivalent of the guest who put a lampshade on his head. This is the justice that elicited more laughs in the
2: Supreme Court than any other. A lot of people used to say that this change came about when Justice Scalia entered the court.
1: Uh, I'm Scalia. Yes, sir.
4: <laughs> I remember that.
2: That he changed the culture of oral argument and jumped in and asked a lot of questions. Uh, a conviction
1: eliminates your, 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 your marriage? Is, is that... I don't have to get a divorce, you just have to get convicted. <laughs> uh, it's a good deal. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a bad deal.
2: And, um, and my research shows that that's actually not true. The only thing that changed when Justice Scalia entered the court was this... Increase in the number of comments rather than questions.
3: Justice Antonin Scalia, a conservative justice appointed in 1986 under President Ronald Reagan, asked more questions and spoke more often in oral arguments than pretty much anyone else in history. And he used oral arguments to get his own feelings across to other justices. He also wrote more. He has the current record for the most concurring opinions. And he's number two in the number of dissents.
4: Who's number one?
3: John Marshall Harlan, otherwise known as the Great Dissenter.
4: Ah, the man who made the famous sole dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. The very same. Okay, so Justice Scalia is like this huge presence on the court.
3: Oh, absolutely. He cracked jokes. He made witty little asides. He bantered more with his colleagues and with the Uh, advocates.
1: deviant would be departing from established norms. Uh, There are established norms of violence... Well, I think if we look back... I mean, some of the Grimm's fairy tales are, are quite grim, to tell you the truth.
2: So to the extent that Justice Scalia has changed anything, it was just this first element of advocacy that I talked about uh, increased. But what happened over time is that all of the justices started behaving differently.
4: It's kind of like you join a friend group where people swear a lot and gradually you start swearing a lot too. Like, in order to be heard in court... These justices have to compete with these other justices who are also jumping in and taking up space.
3: Yeah, and this is true even of Justice Clarence Thomas, who once went 10 years without asking a single question
2: during oral arguments.
4: As somebody who can't stop myself from asking questions and speaking up, I cannot imagine. <laughs>
2: he barely spoke at all. He'd go
4: entire years
2: without talking. But what's interesting is that on a few occasions previously when he did talk, he followed the same pattern you could predict how he was going to vote because the few times that he did talk he would be making comments to the advocate that he ultimately disagreed with so even when the justices don't say much it's still pretty clear what they're doing this sort of strategic behavior uh justice thomas now talks a lot more ever since um since the pandemic and i can talk about why that might be but we see all all of the justices now being very active and very engaged and sort of Uh, dueling with each other sometimes
3: so we're going to talk about how the new rules around oral arguments have contributed to this change in the dynamic why that happened why justice thomas is now speaking up more in court than he ever used to and also why all interruptions are not created equal but first we got to take a quick break but before we go, if you like things like the top 10 best jokes made during Supreme Court arguments, you're going to love our newsletter. It's called Extra Credit. It comes out every two weeks. It's fun. It's free. And you can sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org. Suffering from aches and pains? The all-new Tempur-Pedic Adapt mattress eases your pressure points all night, every night. Now, save up to $500 on select adjustable mattress sets at temperpedic.com. Select adjustable mattress sets only. Lesser savings may
2: apply. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to
0: a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose?
2: Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com.
3: Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch.
0: That is the largest employer in the world.
3: And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job.
0: But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed.
3: 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites.
0: 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use it the better it gets.
3: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash civics.
0: Just go to indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
3: Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. We're back. You're listening to Civics 101. We're talking about how over the last couple of decades, Supreme Court oral arguments have gotten a
2: lot more exciting. Sometimes they make some sort of snarky comments about, well, my question wasn't answered, so, you know, answer this question first. Or they'll say things like, um, you know, well, Justice Alito's point was this, but I want you to answer my question first. Or, or they'll actually rebut each other's points.
3: This is Tanya Jacobi again. She is a legal scholar who studies Supreme Court oral arguments. And just before the break, she told us how, starting in the mid-1990s, justices started talking more and advocating more during oral arguments than they had hitherto. And also that things have just felt more lively. There's a lot more crosstalk as entertainment.
2: As entertainment, it's far better um, for those of us who had to listen to it. But in terms of um, in terms of informativeness about the actual content of the cases, it's probably much less so. But it's very informative about what the justices are thinking and how they're likely to rule.
4: I have to be honest, listening to some of these oral arguments, I feel like I would find it really stressful to be Interrupted, interrupted all the time? I think it would be enraging. I don't think I could do it. i would just so annoyed.
3: <laughs> you were just so annoyed there when I just pretended to interrupt you. <laughs> Sorry for the joke interruption there, Christina. I do have to say that interruptions are pretty integral to how oral arguments work. These advocates are rarely going to just be able to speak freely and pause and say, does anyone have any questions? The justices are the ones running the show. They've got control over the argument.
4: So I remember that rule we were talking about earlier where the advocates are allowed to speak for two minutes before the justices can interrupt, but you also said before the break that we were going to talk about why all interruptions are not created equal. And I think I know where you're going here, but are some justices, some advocates, more likely to be interrupted than others? Are some more likely to do the interrupting? So back in 2017, I did this first project
2: where I showed that the female Supreme Court justices are interrupted as much as three times as often as the male justices. And they're interrupted both by their colleagues, by other justices, but also by advocates. And it was overwhelmingly by male advocates who were doing the
4: interrupting. I don't want to hear this, but I kind of actually do want to hear this? Well, there are
1: three unrelated cases. Pardon? If quote under the Supreme Well, Justice Ginsburg, I think it's the operation of I mean, the Supreme Court. I'm support. sorry, he did refuse to. But well, could, uh, could, could, uh, could I get the answer to the question? So, General, may, get, uh, okay. um, may I ask you uh, about the jurisdictional question? But you there's tell no me com- how far? there's no there's no compulsion. With, well, Counsel, well, I want I don't I mean, want to interrupt your uh, answer to Justice Sotomayor, but uh, just to uh, pick up on a point that you made.
2: And this got a lot of attention and um and both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor commented on it. The Chief Justice was asked about this and uh subsequently Justice Sotomayor has made multiple statements that the court really changed because of this research and things improved that some of the other some of the male justices apologized to her and the Chief got more involved
4: in um in controlling who got to speak sort of referee among the justices. Justice Sotomayor said that things improved, but does Tanya have any data on this? In terms of justice-to-justice interruptions, nothing changed. It's still just
2: as bad as before. The female justices are being interrupted just as much, about three times as often as the male justices. So no improvement there. But the other thing we looked at is whether that's true that the chief justice is intervening more to referee as to who gets to speak. And what we found, interestingly, is that Chief Justice is refereeing a lot more, but he actually started refereeing earlier than 2017, before we called for him to do it. He was already starting to do it. And there's basically a straight line up in terms when you graph um, to show over time the Chief has uh, done this increasingly more, since about 2010.
3: The Chief Justice is the moderator of the oral argument. They step in if people are talking over each other, or if someone needs to be cut off, or they do other things just to keep the argument productive. And how they do that, it's kind of up to them. And what Tanya observed is that Chief Justice Roberts had altered his style of doing things.
2: He became Chief Justice in 2005. He didn't do much refereeing at all. He began refereeing in around 2010. um, But interestingly, he refereed more in favor of the male justice, so he would when there was an interruption, even when the men were interrupting, he'd give the floor to the men for the first few years. And then from about 2015, he started intervening and, and handing the floor to the female justices when they were interrupted.
1: Why, why don't you deal with Justice Sotomayor's first and then Justice Alito's? Thank you. You're
2: and right. he's doing this considerably more now. Um, you know, around about three times as often as he's intervening to say when a female justice is interrupted. And I think even the Chief Justice doesn't know that he's doing this, perhaps. Or maybe he does, but he doesn't want to say that he's doing it. So that to me is is one of the most interesting results that came out of it. But there's a little wrinkle in all of this, and that little
3: wrinkle is the COVID nineteen pandemic.
2: Of course it is. Uh, during the pandemic, when the justices stopped hearing cases in person and, and started hearing them by telephone, the chief justice unilaterally also changed the way that oral argument was ordered during that time, during that pandemic period. And he came up unilaterally, and this is what I mean, where some of the other justices weren't entirely happy, apparently. He decided that the justice would, would speak in order of seniority. Wait, he can do that?
3: Oh, Yeah. Like we talked about in our episode on Supreme Court ethics, link in the show notes, the Supreme Court kind of makes its own rules for how it operates. And so Chief Justice Roberts decided that with all the oral arguments happening virtually, everyone would not be allowed to jump in whenever they wanted. He would call on people instead, and he would go in order of
2: seniority. And so he would get to ask his own questions first as the chief, and then Justice Thomas would get to speak next uninterrupted without any sort of competition from the other justices and suddenly Justice Thomas started engaging and asking questions and making comments and behaving like the other justices.
1: Justice Thomas? Uh, Thank you Chief Justice. Uh, Mr Stewart, uh, it would seem a bit odd if you suggest that we sever the exception but you
2: so in terms of Justice Thomas, some people used to say you know it was an abdication of responsibility by Justice Thomas not to speak at oral argument, and people would report how he actually looked like he was asleep often at oral argument. He would close his eyes and lean back, and just really not engage. And um, and there were various theories about why Justice Thomas didn't speak at oral argument, um, but he himself did eventually speak about this, and he said essentially that he was when he was younger and he grew up. Speaking uh, a dialect that uh, sort of marked him as from a particular region in the South, that, you know, and and from a less educated background, and he was very self conscious about it. Um, And so that was one element, but he also was on record saying he just didn't think oral argument was very informative, or he thought his his colleagues spoke enough. So he sent sort of various mixed messages. Um, What's interesting is that. Back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, there were other justices who spoke as little as Justice Thomas. So he was arguably sort of a bit of a, a remnant from an earlier era, perhaps. But as I mentioned, he he was his behavior was still predictable in terms of you could predict how he's going to vote based on his strategic behavior and oral argument, even though there was less of it. And when that changed was uh, during the pandemic, when the justices stopped hearing cases in person and, and started hearing them by telephone. And when they came back, they introduced a new rule that was to have, at the end of the dynamic referral period, to then have a system where each justice got to speak in term, in order of seniority, and to ask questions uninterrupted. And the reason that this was introduced, according to Justice Sotomayor, was because of my research showing that interruptions at the court are not fair. There's now a sort of mixed system where there is this free-for-all, but then at the end of each oral alignment, there's also this exclusive period for each justice to ask questions.
0: Counsel, Thank what you about counsel, the- uh,
1: Justice Thomas, it's your turn. Justice Alito? Mm-hmm. Justice Kagan? Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, Justice Jackson. Thank you, counsel.
2: And when the court returned to in-person oral argument, there was sort of this seemingly uh, perhaps implicit, perhaps explicit agreement to let Justice Thomas speak first. And so at most oral arguments, the advocate gets two minutes where they are not interrupted by the justices. And then there would be a pause and Justice Thomas would ask some questions. And only when he'd finish asking two or three questions, then all the other justices would jump in and then it'd be like a free-for-all where everybody's sort of talking over each other again.
4: Again, there's no rule preventing any justice from jumping in at will, but it's held now that all the justices have just let Justice Thomas go first anyway.
2: But yeah, there's this, there's this norm now that's developed that Justice Thomas gets to speak first and, and only then does everybody sort of compete in a in an open dialogue. Um, and so that got Justice Thomas speaking again. Um, but it's it's sort of interesting to think about the dynamics at work there.
4: I'm curious, how is that new rule, the one where the Chief Justice gives each justice a chance to ask additional questions at the end, affected the dynamic of these interruptions?
2: Since the new rule was introduced in 2021, uh the the advocates have improved so the advocates aren't disproportionately interrupting the female justices anymore so that's a good change that's uh, uh we still find that the male advocates and the female advocates behave differently and that that suggests that different expectations apply to you know male advocates versus female advocates female advocates just don't interrupt nearly as much and i think that's because the reaction to that sort of misbehavior like the advocates are explicitly told in the rules of the court not to interrupt but it's tolerated of the male advocates and we uh, you have to wonder whether that would be the case um with the female advocates
4: so the justices haven't really changed their behavior much with the exception of chief justice Roberts is refereeing but the advocates seem to be more aware of who they're interrupting and how often
3: yeah and with chief justice roberts in particular This sort of demonstrates his awareness of the public perception of the court. The importance of impartiality in maintaining the court's reputation. Tanya's initial study provided evidence that members of the Supreme Court do not treat every person who stands in front of them, or even their own colleagues, other Supreme Court justices, with the same level of impartiality
4: all right, I'm sold. I feel like this gives me a new interest in listening to oral arguments, especially because they reveal what the justices are thinking before you read their opinions months later.
3: Yeah. I guess you could say, in a sense, we have entered a new era, right? Where the justices are starting to reveal parts of their personalities that they'd previously left at the Supreme Court door. And Tanya gave us a warning. Be careful. Be careful. When you start to listen for this sort of thing, because once you hear it, you won't be able to stop. That is it for oral arguments in the Supreme Court today. This episode was made by Christina Phillips with help from me, Nick Capodice, and Hannah McCarthy. Jackie Fulton is our producer, Rebecca Lavoy, our executive producer. Music in this episode by Kevin MacLeod, Jules Gaia, Ninety One Nova, Eden Avery, The Fly Guy Five, I O Llama House, Francis Wells, Young Community, Mini Vandals, Emily Sprague, Lobo Loco, Scott Grattan, Hanu Dixit. That's this music here. I love it. Musicom, Blue Dot Sessions, Jazar, Sarah the Illustramentalist, and the man who I wish scored every Supreme Court argument. Wouldn't that be great? Chris Sabrisky. Civics One Hundred and One is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. He has the number one record for the most concurring opinions and number two... I can hear you clicking.
4: All right. Should have looked it up.
3: (laughs) I quit. I quit. Ah,
4: Justice Harlan. Harlan. The the, great dissenter. Number one or two. Number one.
3: Uh Uh-huh. The
4: great dissenter. John
3: Harlan. You just asked me who holds the record.
0: Who holds the record? Oh, after I read it. (laughs) Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean